So let us open our Bibles and our scripture reading for this afternoon is from Ephesians 1, verses 1 to 14. And you can find that on page 1342 of your pew Bible. Ephesians 1, verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and faithful in Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. Having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, by which he made us acceptable in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace, which he made to abound toward us in all wisdom and prudence, having made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in himself. That in the dispensation of the fullness of the times, he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth in him. In him also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, that we who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of his glory. In him you also trusted, after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. And then we're going to read also the, the text of the sermon. And the text of the sermon comes from the Heidelberg Catechism, question and answer 54, and the Canons of Dort, chapter 1, article 7. So let us read these articles together. Uh, question and answer 54 is on page 535 of your book of praise. What do you believe concerning the Holy Catholic Christian Church? Answer, I believe that the Son of God, out of the whole human race, from the beginning of the world to its end, gathers, defends, and preserves for himself by his Spirit and Word in the unity of the true faith, a church chosen to everlasting life. And I believe that I am and forever shall remain a living member of it. And uh, the reading from the Canons of Dort is on page 566 of your book of praise. So chapter 1, article 7, election defined. Election is the unchangeable purpose of God whereby before the foundation of the world out of the whole human race, which had fallen by its own fault out of its original integrity into sin and perdition, 
He has, according to the sovereign good pleasure of his will, out of mere grace, chosen in Christ to salvation a definite number of specific persons, neither better nor more worthy than others, but involved together with them in a common misery. He has also, from eternity, appointed Christ to be the mediator and head of all the elect and the foundation of salvation. And thus he decreed to give to Christ those who were to be saved and effectually to call and draw them into his communion through his word and spirit. He decreed to give them true faith in him, to justify them, to sanctify them, and after having powerfully kept them in the fellowship of his Son, finally to glorify them for the demonstration of his mercy and the praise of the riches of his glorious grace, as it is written, God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the Beloved. And elsewhere, those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Uh, the sermon I am about to read is prepared by Dr. Wes Bradenhoff, Minister of the Word at Launceston Free Reformed Church at Launceston, Tasmania, Australia. And after the reading of the sermon, we will sing in response from Psalm 116, verse 7. Beloved congregation of Christ, missions is not the ultimate goal of the church. Worship is. Missions exist because worship doesn't. Worship is ultimate, not missions, because God is ultimate, not man. Those words open John Piper's book, Let the Nations Be Glad. And Piper is exactly right. We want God to be made much of, and that's why we care about the lost. That's why we pray about them, and that's why we do whatever we can to bring the gospel to them. It's all about worship in the broadest sense, all about magnifying the glory of our great and majestic God. The canons of Dort are aimed at the same goal. The canons of Dort are all about bringing more adoration to God, securing the praise of his glory. If we know anything about the canons, we probably know that they were written to address some errors threatening the Reformed churches in the late 1500s and early 1600s. There was a minister named Jacobus Harmenzun. We know him better by the Latin form of his last name, Arminius. Arminius started having questions about some teachings of the Heidelberg Catechism and the Belgic Confession. Specifically, he questioned the doctrine of election and other doctrines connected with it. This led to a controversy. Eventually, Arminius died, but he had students who carried on his errors into the next generations. The Synod of Dort was convened in 1618 to address these errors, and it was this Synod 
that produced our third confession, the Canons of Dort. By the way, canons here have nothing to do with guns, as if the Senate was trying to shoot down these errors. This is canon with one N. A canon here refers to a church judgment. But what's at stake here? If we listen to the Synod itself, in its conclusions to the canons of Dort, it was and is the glory of God's name. Ministers are encouraged to teach these doctrines of grace, seeking to magnify God's greatness. Learning about these doctrines is therefore not an intellectual exercise, but a devotional one. We want to learn about these doctrines of grace because we want God to be made much of by us and by others. This is not only a matter of instructing our heads, but also igniting our hearts. To rephrase Piper, right doctrine is not the ultimate goal of the church. Worship is. Brothers and sisters, that's why we'll spend some time over the next few weeks with these doctrines of grace. This afternoon, we'll begin with the doctrine of election. As senior catechism students know, the bare-bone definition of election is simple. God chooses us. Even your little kids can learn that, and your parents can ask you later, what is election? God chooses us. Three words. It's very easy to learn the basic teaching here about election. But of course, there is much more that could and should be said. We should go on from milk to meat. We need to ask questions like, what does God choose us for? When did he choose us? Why did he choose us? What are the consequences or results of his choosing us? We sometimes think of the Heidelberg Catechism as the confession of comfort. But the theme of comfort is also everywhere in the Canons of Dort. Chapter 1, Article 6, ends by saying that the doctrine of election provides unspeakable comfort for holy and God-fearing souls. By providing such comfort, this teaching also leads us to praise God and live for Him. So this afternoon, we'll learn about our unspeakable comfort in the Reformed doctrine of election. And we'll consider, one, the timing of our election, two, the basis of our election, and three, the results of our election. So election means that God chooses us. Before getting into the timing, we need to back up for just a minute and ask, but for what? Chosen for what? If we turn to our reading from Ephesians 1, the answer given there has several aspects. Verse 5 says that we have been predestined for adoption as God's Son. He chose us to be his privileged children. If we look at verse 11, Paul says that our election is ultimately for the praise of God's glory. And that thought is found several times in Ephesians 1. And going back to verse 4, God chooses us to be holy and blameless in his sight. The Heidelberg Catechism in question and answer 54 summarizes all this by saying that God has chosen us to everlasting life. Similarly, in Article 7 of Chapter 1, the Canons of Dort say that we are chosen to salvation. 
Election, therefore, means that God chooses us for salvation from sin and all its effects, the most serious of which is God's own wrath against sin. Election also means that God chooses us so that having been saved, we would walk in the way of salvation which he prepared for us that we should walk in it. Election really is the whole package of what it means to be a Christian. We also confess that this doctrine of election involves a definite number of specific persons. Someone might read question answer 54 of the Catechism and be inclined to conclude that an election involves a faceless group of people, the church. With that way of thinking, God has only chosen the church to everlasting life. But he has not given any consideration to individual people within that church. To illustrate the difference, it would be like there being an election in Canada. You go to the ballot box, and you can only vote for a political party. You don't vote for individual members of parliament, but just for the party. And that's not the way our election to salvation works. God specifically elects definite individual people. He elects them, he elects individuals by name, so to speak. How do we know this? We can think here of what scripture says about Jacob. God specifically says he chose Jacob as an individual. Now what about the timing of our election? Here too, scripture is quite clear. Hear what verse 4 of Ephesians 1 says. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world. That means that God decided to grant us salvation in Christ before the world existed. Before Genesis 1 verse 1, God determined that he would grant salvation to a specific number of people and he exactly knew which people they would be. Think about this. Before there were stars in the sky, God knew your name, and he knew you would be his. Before there was water in the oceans, God knew every DNA sequence in your genome, billions of them. He, and he decreed that he would have Jesus as your savior. Before there was any creature on earth, God set his love on you and declared that you would live with him forever. This is why Paul is up on the heights in Ephesians 1. This is why he's so filled with praise for God, and that's where the Holy Spirit wants to bring us to. He wants us to think on these things, so that we should be awestruck at our God, at his power and his love for us. This is a love that stretches beyond time and creation. Awesome, isn't it? Moreover, it is comforting to know that our lives have always been in the hand of our loving and gracious God. We're not products of chance or luck or whatever else. We have a God who has always known us personally and has made us the object of his decree for election. But this teaching could raise troublesome questions. Let's briefly talk about one of them. If God chose us before the foundation of the world, and if this election is to salvation from sin, 
and from the wrath of God, doesn't it mean that God then also has ordained sin? After all, God is sovereign, and he controls all things that happen. So then did God decree that Adam and Eve would fall into sin? These questions are nothing new. They were debated already back in the days of the Canons of Dort were written. The Canons of Dort are very careful on these points, careful not to go beyond what God himself says in his word. The Bible teaches that God is good and that he does good. God is not responsible for sin. He cannot be blamed for anything evil in this world. To say that God is the author of sin, the one who wrote the decree for sin, is blasphemous. Scripture will not allow us to go in that direction. As Article 7 of Chapter 1 says, the human race fell by its own fault out of its original integrity into sin and lostness or perdition. We are to blame, not God. He is 100% to be praised for our salvation, but the human race is 100% responsible for its sin. Then how do we reconcile our election before the creation of the world with the fact that this is an election to salvation from sin? Short answer, the Bible doesn't tell us. There are different theories out there among theologians about how to reconcile these things, but they are theories, and all of them have problems of one sort or another. What the Belgic Confession says in Article 13 is helpful. And as to his actions, surpassing human understanding, we will not curiously inquire farther than our capacity allows us. But with the greatest humility and reverence, we adore the just judgments of God, which are hidden from us. And we content ourselves that we are pupils of Christ, who have only to learn those things which he teaches us in his word, without transgressing these limits. Loved ones, that's where we have to land. We are pupils of Christ, and we have to go humbly with what he says in his word, even if there are some points that we struggle to make sense of. We trust that God knows how all these things fit together, even though we can't. Now let's go on to the basis of our election. This is the most important place where the Reformed view and the Armenian view part ways. The followers of Jacob Arminius agreed that there is a doctrine of election taught in the Bible. It was how they defined that doctrine that was a problem. So if you encounter someone who claims to be a Christian and says that they believe in election, don't right away assume that they hold to the doctrines of grace. Don't assume that they hold on to a reformed view of salvation. Armenians believe in election too. The problem is with the basis of that election. The Armenians worked with the fact that God is omniscient. He knows all things that happen, and he knew everything that would happen in history. So, before the creation of the world, they said, God looked down the hallways of history, far off in the distance, and he saw certain people who would cooperate with his grace and believe in Jesus Christ. He elected them based on what he saw them doing off in the future. According to the Armenians, election is on the basis of foreseen faith. 
Not necessarily on the good, not necessarily on the basis of good deeds, mind you, but on the basis that, of the faith that the Christians would have in the future. Against that view, the Synod of Dort insisted that election is on the basis of the sovereign good pleasure of God's will out of mere grace. Article 9 and 10 of chapter 1 of the canons expand on this. Article 9 explicitly rejects the Armenian view. Election is not based on foreseen faith. Article 10 explains the biblical view. Election is based on God's good pleasure. In his grace, God decides to save some, not because they're better or more worthy, not because they would have a strong faith or any faith at all, only because he so decides and his will is good. Now that's what the canons of Dort say, but is it biblical? Ephesians 1 verse 5 reminds us that it is in love that we are predestined and that it is according to the good pleasure of his will. And then there's Acts 13 verse 48 which states it even more clearly. Paul and Barnabas were doing missionary work in Pisidian Antioch. They were preaching the gospel to the Jews. These Jews, some responded in faith, but there were many others who reacted against the gospel. Paul and Barnabas then turned their attention to the Gentiles. Acts 13 verse 48 tells us the result. When the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and honored the word of the Lord and all who were appointed to eternal life believed. They came to faith because they were appointed to eternal life, not the other way around. Faith comes because of election. It's not the basis of election. The basis of our election is God's good pleasure and will in Christ. What that means is we can't separate our election from Christ our Savior. His work in history is intimately related to God's election of us in eternity, before the foundation of the world. You see, God not only determined our election, but also how our election would come to pass, and that is through Christ. The Bible teaches that everyone chosen by God is given to Christ. All the elect in time, are united to Christ, will be preserved in Christ, and will be glorified through and like Christ. There are some common objections or questions that arise when we talk about the basis of our election. One of the most common is that it's unfair. It's unfair because God choosing some means that he doesn't choose others. Indeed, the Bible not only teaches election, but also reprobation. Reprobation is the teaching that God leaves some in their sin. He chooses some, but not others. And some people have a real problem with that. God should be fair, they say. To be fair, God should choose everyone and not leave anyone out. You kids know that's how it is at school. Your teachers tell you not to leave anyone out. When you leave people out, that's not fair and that's not nice. So what, does God, what about God and what he does with election then? 
The classical answer is that this is the wrong question. The question should not be, why doesn't God decree to save everyone? The question really should be, why should God save anyone? No one deserves to be saved. No one deserves to be among the elect of God. On the playground at school, you might say that no one deserves to be left out. But before God, we all deserve to be left out. Loved ones, this is why we call the doctrine of election a doctrine of grace. This is not about anyone deserving something from God. We deserve nothing from him but his eternal wrath. The fact that he chooses some to eternal life is grace. Those who are not included in the decree of election are simply receiving what they and all of us deserve by rights. And keeping in mind, too, that no one is going to hell against their will. The unregenerate have chosen to rebel against God and death, and hell doesn't change their hearts so that, they suddenly, so that suddenly they truly regret their rebellion, want to follow God and live with him forever, praising him. Those in hell might hate being in hell, but the alternative of living with Christ forever and singing his praises will always be abhorrent to them. Hell does not make people want Christ. It can't regenerate dead and cold hearts. Hell cannot do the work of the Holy Spirit. God is just, and he gives unbelievers not only what they deserve, but, what, but actually also what they want. The fact that it's different with us is only to be credited to his grace. God doesn't owe it to us at all. Paul makes the same point in Romans 9. The chapter is speaking about election, and Paul addresses the question of whether this makes God unjust. He quotes God's words to Moses in Exodus 33. I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. And then he adds, it does not therefore depend on man's desire or effort, but on God's mercy. Notice again how the basis of our election is in God's mercy, not our effort. Then Paul strengthens his argument by appealing to the image of God as the potter and us as the clay. Can the clay argue with the potter? The potter can do whatever he wants with his clay, whether he makes his justice and power known through his wrath or his mercy known through his salvation. God is sovereign and free to do as he pleases. When we think about that, again, we're led to praise God. He has mercy on us. He's given us the opposite of what we deserve. What a comfort it is to know that because of his good pleasure and will, we are headed for the new heavens and the new earth. Not because of us. We're fickle. We're dust. And we get blown around so easily. But because of him. And it's because of him. We can certainly... We certainly have that we are God's children and heirs. He doesn't let go of us. Loved ones, let the wonder of God's grace really sink into your heart. And as it sinks in, it does have a result in our lives. We've got that unspeakable comfort of being God's chosen. We've been the objects of his love and concern. The first result of that is what I just mentioned. 
And looking again at Ephesians 1, Paul can't restrain himself here. You know how someone gets excited about something and they just ramble? They don't even take a moment to breathe? That's Paul here in Ephesians 1. He's enraptured with this teaching. In Greek, verses 3 to 14 is made up of these grammatically atrocious run-on sentences. But such is the grammar of someone who's fired up about something. Paul isn't some detached theologian here. He's brought up to the heights of exaltation in God, and that's where the Holy Spirit wants to bring us to. Summarizing scripture, that's where the canons of Dort want to bring us to. This is why the Synod of Dort was so concerned about the Armenian errors, because they took away from the glory of God and brought some of the credit to man for salvation. They subtracted from God's grace and glory and tried to add to the human side a credit that should never have been there. Then there's also verse 4 of Ephesians 1, which I've mentioned already. It says there that God has chosen us to be holy and blameless in his sight. Election is not on the basis of holiness and blamelessness. These things are the result of election. God chooses us before the foundation of the world. We come into this world We believe in Christ as we're predestined to do. And when we realize how we've been the objects of God's grace, we're filled with a desire to love him and please him. Acknowledging election makes us thankful Christians who want to walk in the ways of our God. As a response to our gracious God, we earnestly want to live for him. So that, loved ones, that leads me to ask you, Do you see how rich God has been towards you? Believing in Christ, resting and trusting in him alone, do you see how God's work in your life, in fact, was God's work before the world was even created? If you see it, let it stir up your heart to love and good works. Let the reminder you've heard this afternoon drive you to want to live for your God every day to live for for him worshipfully, purposefully, giving glory to the great God of our salvation. Perhaps the sermon has left you with more questions. For instance, perhaps you're wondering about assurance of election. How can you know that you're among the elect? Let me encourage you to go home, crack open the canons of Dort for yourself. The canons speak to such questions and more like them. They speak biblically. And if you do this reading with an open Bible, looking up the references, you can discover this for yourself. You'll discover that there really is comfort in these doctrines of grace. Unspeakable comfort. Because we have such a great God who loves us so deeply in Jesus our Savior. Amen.